Thank you so much to all those who braved the weather and came out to gather in person. And thank you all who are online uh, watching from the comfort of your own home, um, probably in a recliner with a blanket on, a cup of coffee. No, actually, you were uh, very smart to come out, and you're probably wondering, who, who made the call to, to keep the services going? You can blame me. That was me. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, we, we made it. We all thank you. Thankfully, we haven't, I don't think there was any accidents on the way to get here. Thank the Lord and that we were involved in. And we'll pray that that's the, the case on the way home as well. So hopefully maybe there'll be more clearing on the roads as we get out there. Yeah, just preach a long time. Oh, I get permission to preach a long time. Thank you, Pat. Pat said that. So... Turn with me this morning in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, Today we are going to be um, looking at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to be looking at it in light of the issue of abortion that is still uh, an issue that we we face and we confront um, in our time in this country, Um, a sin of our nation. Uh, that is long-standing now. Um, though we had a, a glimmer of hope in 2022 with the reversal of the, the Roe versus Wade decision back in June when our Supreme Court handed down that ruling, there is still much work to be done. Those of you who attended my Sunday school last week were treated to a preview discussion of our sermon today. And last week we discussed uh, an aspect of Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Specifically, we talked about the word depraved that appears in those verses, and we talked about its meaning in that context. And let me just refresh your memory if you weren't here, um, or if you weren't here for the first time. According to John Barry of Lexham Press, the word depraved in that in that context means a mind that is incapable of moral or ethical discernment. And according to Douglas Moo in his commentary on that section of Scripture in the New Bible Commentary, he describes depraved as meaning the minds of human beings can no longer function as they should. After this this discussion of the word depraved, I sought to illustrate the condition of our society as exhibiting a collectively depraved mind. And so I showed a few videos. One of the ones I showed was a humorous video called Please Don't Eat My PB&J. And some of you remember that. Um, If you didn't get a chance to watch it, check it out. You'll probably be sorry that you did. Um, But I showed that video to illustrate, it was humorous, uh, the phenomenon of, of not having the will to act upon clear evidence that leads to the obvious and only conclusion until it's too late, and all the PBJs were stolen and eaten. So if you get a chance, go watch that video. I showed another video also at the very end of the controversial figure Andrew Tate, who was being interviewed on a podcast and urging his interviewers to have the moral courage to call out those guilty of the evil of pedophilia. And that pedophilia had exhibited itself um, right in front of their faces in the Balenciaga advertising campaigns that were all in the news a couple of months ago. And the fact that Andrew Tate, a 
man who is not a very moral man, was willing to do this and to call that out, but his hosts were not, I thought was noteworthy. Why were they not willing to call out that obvious evil in front of them? Before I showed those two videos, I showed the video of an interview from 1985 of the KGB defector to the U.S. named Yuri Bezmenov. He was seeking to warn Americans in that interview of the intent of communists to destroy America using the tactic of ideological subversion. Bezmenov described ideological subversion as having the aim of incapacitating the citizens of America from making clear decisions and knowing what to do when confronted with evil. In a word, those enemies of our country sought to make the minds of Americans depraved. The first step, according to Bezmanov, in accomplishing this ideological subversion was the long-term process that he called demoralizing the society. In other words, what he means by that is eliminating the foundational moral principles that our country was built upon in order to ultimately destabilize it and destroy it. In order to overthrow the nation, its enemies had to first attack and weaken the moral fabric of the society. It goes without saying, though I'll say it anyway, that on this pro-life Sunday of 2023, the issue of abortion, as much or more than any other issue, displays the degree to which our society's moral fabric has deteriorated and just how depraved our minds have actually become. I ended our time together last week with a preview of the passage that would guide our thoughts today in this sermon. So with the intention of expanding upon what we began discussing last week, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and begin our study today. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray. Verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lord God, I come before you this morning with these verses on my mind and on my heart, and this issue on my mind and on my heart. And I bring before you, God, what I've prepared. And as I prayed throughout the week, Lord, I pray it would be received as an act of worship unto you. Lord God, I pray that you would guide me um, as I proceed this morning. And I pray, God, that you would give those in attendance here and online and those who may listen to this after the fact, Father, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see 
And I pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would do a work in our midst in convincing us of the truth, leading us to prayer. Father, leading us to love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So those of you who like to take notes, let me give you a brief outline of my path forward this morning. The first thing I want to do is to give you some context for this passage. So that's number one. Number two, I'm going to spend a, the bulk of my time going through the passage verse by verse, explaining and illustrating key words. I'm not going to be able to go through each word in this passage um, in detail. In the interest of time, I'm going to just pull out a few that I think are especially noteworthy right now. And third and finally, I, I want to highlight what I believe is the main point that we should take away from this passage and the main implications for us today. So let's go ahead and dig in that first one. Let's talk about the context of 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7. So remember again last week I spoke about Romans 1. And uh, this week we are in 2 Timothy. And both of these books were written by the Apostle Paul. But there, there's important differences in their purpose and in their audience. Paul wrote to a broader or regional audience most of the time. And you can tell this by the names of the letters that he wrote that are in our New Testament. So Ephesians was written to the church in that region of Ephesus. First and second Corinthians were written to that, those Christians who were in the city of Corinth, etc., etc. So Romans was written to the general audience of Christians or congregations that were in and around Rome. In the case of 2 Timothy, it is one of three special letters that we call, that, that Paul wrote, that we call the pastoral epistles. Does anyone besides Pastor John and Pastor Eddie know what the other two pastoral epistles are? You can raise your hand if you know. Nobody? Oh, Caleb, you do? What are they? Yes, very good. 1 Timothy and Titus. That's my boy. That's my boy. 1 Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy was an easy one, but Titus, not as much. So while the, the purpose of Paul's letters with a more general audience was important in, in teaching doctrine and living to the church members at large, the pastoral epistles uh, were, more in, were important and specific letters of instruction to pastors. These pastors who were leading congregations that Paul had founded or influenced in, in mighty ways. So these are letters from Paul, and they're all at the end of his ministry, before he was martyred. And he's giving special instruction to those who are going to carry on those ministries after he departed this life. So 2 Timothy was written to Timothy. Go figure. And who was Timothy? It's important. I don't think we understand how important Timothy was in our New Testaments, because we don't have any writings of Timothy in our New Testament. We don't have any examples of his sermons or anything like that, but let me give, just give you uh, a, a, an idea of why Timothy is so important in our New Testament. First of all, he was Paul's most special prodigy and disciple throughout his ministry. He's mentioned as being a companion and a fellow minister of Paul in numerous other epistles. He's mentioned in Romans. He's mentioned in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He's mentioned in Philippians. He's mentioned in Colossians. He's mentioned in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He's mentioned, of course, in 1st and 2nd Timothy. He's even mentioned in Philemon. And finally, he's even mentioned in Hebrews. I have a feeling this is probably one of the reasons that Pastor John argues that, that Paul was the writer of Hebrews, because Timothy gets special mention in that book. 
At the time of Paul's writing this letter, though, 2 Timothy, to Timothy, it would seem that Timothy was the pastor at the, at the largest church um, in Christendom at that point in time. It was a church that Paul founded, and it was in Ephesus. And you may be saying to yourself right now, Eric, okay, this is all really interesting, but what is the point of giving all of this context related to your sermon today? Well, here's the point. Romans 1, through 28 through 32, with its similar list of sinfulness that we talked about last week and depravity, it was written to a general audience. And it was describing the state of the world or the state of the society at large. It was describing societal depravity. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 is describing a much more specific depravity. It's a depravity that emerges in the last days. And it's written to Timothy to warn him and equip him with how to deal with the depravity that would eventually characterize the church. So he's talking about, when he talks about this laundry list of sins, he's talking about what's going to happen within the church. Paul in his first letter to Timothy said a really similar thing to what he says here in 2 Timothy. When he said, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The warning, as it is here in 2 Timothy, was concerned with wickedness that would develop in and eventually characterize the church. And we can see this within the text before us, within these seven verses that we're looking at, by the description of these imposters, these false teachers. In verses 5 and 6, it says that they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. They enter or they creep or worm their way into households and captivate by means of false teaching the weak. So these men have the appearance or the form like a silhouette or like a mannequin of Christians. But it is merely a form and the surface level appearance. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones and the power of God's Spirit is absent and denied. So let that sink in for a minute. The context matters here. Those in the church will exhibit this laundry list of wickedness. Likely, that might not surprise us today, especially those of us who've been around for a while, because we see much evidence of this already happening in the church at large. So the context is important for us to grasp as we move forward to my second objective. So here's the second one. I want to go through the passage verse by verse, explaining and illustrating key words that are within it. Let's jump in. Verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul wants Timothy to realize or know something. And this is in contrast to the last verse that we're going to look at today. Verse 7. It's in contrast to that um, because these people are ever learning yet unable to actually know anything. Paul is saying to Timothy, I want you to know this. I want you to realize this. And Timothy could confidently know that what Paul was saying was true because he knew the source of what Paul taught was none other than God Himself. Paul wanted Timothy to realize something about the last days. And this is used here, just as it's used in many other places in the New Testament, to refer to the time of the Messiah. Paul believed he and Timothy were living in the last days. You see, the last days started at Pentecost. After Jesus had ascended into heaven, 
when the church was birthed by the outpouring of the indwelling Holy Spirit that occurred that day in Jerusalem. In the same sense, we are living in the last days today. Our parents were living in the last days. Our grandparents were living in the last days. The last days have been going on for a long time. So, the, uh, the, the, the last days were an unknown length of time. It's not known to us today how long it will be, and it was not known to Paul and Timothy how long it would be. But what is clear also in the New Testament is that the concept of the last days, the time approaching Christ's return, as it gets closer and closer, those times of peril and those times of difficulty will become more and more frequent, more and more intense. And those intervening periods of relative peace will be shorter and shorter, and they'll be less and less frequent and less and less peaceful. So this understanding of the last days as being both both a present reality and a future is clear in this passage. And you can see that in the way that Paul uses the future tense. He says the last days will come. These difficult times will come. They will come. But he also, when he illustrates the reality of what those days that will come will be like, he uses present day examples. Things that he had already seen. False teachers who should be avoided at all costs, he says. Paul says that in these last days, difficult times will come. This is variously translated depending on what English version you're reading. But this word for difficult is the Greek word kalepos. And this word is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that's in Matthew chapter 8, verses, verse 28. And there it's used to describe just how extremely violent those two demon-possessed men in the country of the Gadarenes were. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 8? Those men that were demon-possessed, that were hiding amongst the catacombs, the tombs, they were so, it says, extremely violent that chains couldn't hold these men. They had torn their clothes off, they ran around naked and in a constant state of rage so that people were afraid of them and avoided them. This is that word. The sense of this descriptive word, difficult, is that the times will be dangerous, they'll be perilous, they'll be savage or vicious. And based on previous things Paul has said to Timothy, we can conclude that, like in the case of the demon-possessed men of Matthew 8, that the spirit behind that viciousness and peril of those times will also be demonically inspired. This should also, I think, make it clear that the real, battle in, the real battlefront in the effort to destroy our country and to destroy our society, America's moral fabric, is a spiritual one. It may have manifested in the physical realm as a communist or a socialist subversion tactic, but the real battle is against satanic forces that are arrayed against us. Verses 2-4. to four. Paul begins his dirty laundry list of wickedness. He says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Like I said before, I'm not going to have time to go over each and every one of these in detail, so I'm going to keep it pretty high level. 
And I'm going to highlight just a few of the characteristics that most clearly speak to or illustrate the lack of moral clarity related to the issue of abortion for us today. So this first one is very important. The first one in Paul's list, it's prominent in his list and it should be prominent in our minds. And that is this, they will be lovers of self. Our culture is obsessed with self-love. We talk on and on and on about self-esteem and self-worth and self-confidence and finding our authentic or our true selves. We are living in the, the selfie generation. Young ladies, we see you with your cell phone in hand. Your friends behind you. We see that those pouty lips and those flirtatious eyes as you take selfies. We see that. Young men, we see you with the same cell phones except you're making the hard look, the sideways peace sign. We see you doing that. It's the selfie generation. Snapping pics of ourselves all the time. Updating our Facebook pages. Updating our Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter pages. Whatever social media platform you may have. We design them to showcase ourselves. As if we have a little shrine devoted to ourselves online. In some ways, our culture treats the love of self as the highest virtue to which we can attain. There's a new biopic movie that's coming out. Are you guys familiar with this? It's, I don't know, it might be out already, but it's celebrating the life of the late Whitney Houston. You guys, have you heard of this one yet? Whitney Houston was an amazing talent. Her singing capabilities are, are almost unmatched, and there's a lot of people that are very excited to to watch this new movie about her. But I just want you to real quick, take a listen to some of the lyrics of the song that probably more than any of other, other of her songs made her famous. It's called The Greatest Love of All. And you may sing along if, you, if you, the tune rings out in your head. I'm kidding. But she says, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty that they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone to fulfill my needs. A lonely place to be. And so I learned to depend on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all in, inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself. It is the greatest love of all, she sang. I can't express to you how wrong this is. It doesn't matter how soothing the instrumentation of that song is, or how soaring Whitney Houston's vocal range may make us feel, or how catchy and singable the tune is. The message of that song is a lie. 
It's a lie. Paul lists being a lover of self as the fountain from which springs a whole host of evils that we would consider terrible. John MacArthur says that the pride of self-love might be called the sewer out of which all of the rest of these ugly sins are discharged. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, wrote, Two cities have been founded by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Let's move on to the next point that's important to point out here. After Paul mentions a few other things, most of them are related to self-love, using synonyms for pride, Paul gives us a list of eight ah words. Eight words that begin in the Greek with with, ah. Um, And here they are. I'll give them to you in the Greek so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Apiethes, which means disobedient. Acharistoi, which means ungrateful. Anosioi, which means unholy. Astorgoi, which means unloving. Aspondoi, which means irreconcilable. Akratis, without self-control. Anemiroi, which means brutal. Aphilagathoi, which means haters of good. You see, they all begin with that prefix, ah. So, in each of these, in, each of these in this list, there is a, a good or righteous corollary on those. But because he uses the, the ah prefix... It causes those virtues or that good side to be uh, representing the evil opposite. So um, what you have is uh, instead of obedient, you have disobedient or apiethis. Instead of grateful, you have ungrateful, so on and so forth. Does that make sense? So this is a list of things that Paul meant to be shocking because... They represent the abandonment even of even the most basic norms of hum, decent human behavior and manners. Um, this list mostly includes things that you would, would be surprised not to see in human befa- behavior. It, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you, but it, it's, it's not normally been a, a surprising thing to find someone who has well, good enough manners to say thank you and to be grateful. It might come as a surprise to you that in prior generations, the expectation that a child would generally be obedient to their parents was not an uncommon thing to expect. Today, we might not think that way because we see disobedient children all the time, sometime in our own home. Um, Not anybody in this room, I'm sure. Um, Not anybody in this pulpit, I don't think. So, another one on this list, list, though, that's worth pointing out is that word unloving. That word unloving is astorgoi, astorgoi. And it, it's the Greek word that has the, the word for love, storge, in it as the root. And that Greek word was particularly used to describe love for family, love between a parent and their child. So the rendering here in 2 Timothy 2 means more than just unloving in a general sense. It means without natural love or without natural affection. And some English translations have have rendered it that way, which I think is helpful. Even to the degree that children would hate their parents or parents would hate their children. This is what's intended or included in the meaning of this term, unloving. And you think about that and you wonder how sobering this is to think that the evil of abortion in our own day shows us that the decline of our society has gone 
so far as to reach this level of fallenness. When those would-be mothers who would normally feel natural love, natural affection for their children most acutely, are without that natural affection for the babies that they carry in their wombs. Very sad. Moving on. In this list, there's another word that, that breaks up that ah prefix list of words, and it's the one that's translated as malicious gossips in the New American Standard Bible. Now, that word is often in, in many English translations translated as slanderer or slanderous. But I think the best English rendering of this word is actually in the good old King James Version. In that version, it trans, it's translated as false accusers. The word in the Greek is diabolos, which is where we get the English word diabolical. That Greek word diabolos means accuser, and it's also the title for Satan. The sense here is someone who makes things up to accuse someone or of something falsely. And to do something like that is indeed diabolical. Have you ever done something like that? Have you ever done something like this where you made something up about someone else so that you can get something for yourself? Or place the blame on someone else for something that you did? That's diabolical. That's what is being described here. It's a malicious gossip. When I was a young boy, I've told many of you this story. We had a science fair project that we had to do that the whole fourth and fifth grade had to participate in. And I was in the fourth grade, and I had built a model rocket. And I think I've told you this. And like a dummy, I set off the model rocket in the lobby of the school building. And uh, I was scared to death. I, the, you know, the whole school, literally the whole school gathers around me, and I'm standing there guilty as can be in a cloud of smoke. Literally smoke, because it was like a gunpowder rocket that went off in the middle of the school. And the, 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 the sea parted, the sea of people parted, and comes walking toward me is the principal, Mr. Farmer. And I thought, I am a dead man. Well, I wasn't a dead man yet. And as the day progressed, a little rumor started. I didn't start the rumor, but a little rumor started that someone who was neighboring me with another display, his kid's name was Alex Weichold, who I was actually good friends with. This rumor was that Alex went over and set my rocket off. And I, of course, thought, oh, good, this is my way out. Alex did it. Yeah, Alex did it. It was totally me all along. I was being diabolical. Kids, if you're hearing this, don't ever follow that example, right? Thankfully, Alex didn't get the blame for it. I eventually, you know, got the blame for it, and surprisingly, I didn't get in trouble. But anyway, that's an example of what I'm talking about here with this word. But you can see how this slanderous type of behavior can lead to another vice that's on this list. And that brings us to the next sinful characteristic that I wanted to mention, which is this, haters of good. And just to give you a little heads up, I'm going to spend a bit of time on this one. Because I think this one is especially important and relevant for us today. Haters of the good. The King James again, again renders this in a way that I think is helpful as despisers of those that are good. And I want to submit to you today that I believe the danger for Christians to become haters of the good unwittingly is greater than at any time in my life. And much of this stems from the diabolical falsehoods that our mainstream media sources and sadly many in our government spew out continually. 
These combined with, with a shepherding influence of social media and pop culture, they literally set as their aim to make those that they influence become haters of good and lovers of the wicked. It's what they're trying to do. And to tell you the truth, I struggled with narrow, narrowing down the ways in which to illustrate this because I believe I could find myriad, myriad examples almost every day of instances where the media is designed to create haters of good and lovers of wickedness. I settled on three examples. Bear with me as I go through these. The first one is this. On Sunday, July 18th, 2021, not even two years ago, David Mahan from the Center for Christian Virtues, CCV, a ministry that we support, was invited by the leadership at Crossroads Church to preach all three sermons at that church. And the invitation was extended after the staff had already seen a video of David speaking on the topic to which he was going to address that day. David could not have been given a bigger Christian audience in town from which to speak to this important topic. And his topic was public policy on transgenderism and the medical and political movement to put children on dangerous cross-sex hormones and sterilizing puberty blockers. This was his topic. Now, after each of these sermons that he gave, he had a conversation on stage with the senior pastor of that church. And his messages and the subsequent conversations each received a standing ovation by the crowd that was present in all three of those services. But something happened after the fact. Some who were in attendance in person and online expressed that they were offended at David's message. And the welcome that he received at the church also offended them. They didn't like that he was there to talk about those issues and that the church gave him such a platform. I'll never forget watching the news about this later on the next day and seeing how our local news media bent over backwards to paint Crossroads as homophobic and transphobic and to paint CCV as a far right-wing radical political group. Neither of those are any of those things. The news segment was very short on context, and it included scant, if any, that I remember, actual footage of the messages that David preached. But a great deal of time was spent interviewing a man who seemed to me to be a disgruntled former employee of Crossroads. And he spoke very negatively of the church and very glowingly of members of the LGBT community. I find myself wondering as I ponder this illustration. How many undiscerning Christians joined in with the mob to intimidate and to shout down Crossroads and CCV? How many Christians joined in that chorus of those who are haters of good? The second illustration. On Friday, June 24th, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. I was out of town with my family when this happened. In fact, I was actually at a park with my kids when I read the fantastic news on my phone, and I was celebrating. I was overjoyed. I called all my kids over to me. I said, come off of the playground. 
Come here and sit down in front of me. I want your eyes on me. I need your full attention. And I proceeded to tell them of the news, and I made certain to communicate, communicate clearly to them that today is a good day. The Supreme Court had made a right decision to send this issue of abortion back to the states and that this decision could eventually lead to stricter laws that may end up eliminating the practice of abortion in many states throughout our country. I told them that this was a historic day and that they should never forget the importance of this day. Later on that evening, we were with some old friends talking and I brought up the good news about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And thinking that I was talking with ones who would share in my celebration, I was surprised when I could tell that they were beginning to become, become very uneasy with the things that I was saying in praise of the Supreme Court's decision. And the response I got verbally from them was, yeah, I'm not really into that whole Christian nationalism thing. This is what they said to me. I was taken aback a little bit. I was kind of, I kind of looked at him side-eyed like, what, what's that all about? Because it seemed like a total non-sequitur thing to say. Like, how does that follow? What does this have to do with the, the issue of abortion? But I ended up talking with him further about the decision and the, the whole Christian nationalist thing, attempting to bring this person around to a clearer way of thinking on this subject. And, and it dawned on me, though, after that exchange just how successful the media has been at diabolically painting anyone who disagrees with the left-wing globalist pro-choice agenda, just how extremist they are characterized. They consider anybody who is pro-life as members of some newly invented boogeyman that everyone must now fear and hate and speak out against. And I find myself wondering how many other Christians, besides those that I was talking to, joined sides with those who stood opposed to and attacking the Supreme Court for having the audacity to overturn their sacred cow of abortion. How many Christians joined in the chorus of those who are haters of the good? Third illustration. Back in July of this past summer, the story of a young girl, age 10, who was raped by a person who had entered into and was living in this country illegally. The young girl was impregnated as a result of this rape. And this is an unspeakably tragic and sad set of events. A horrific experience and circumstances for this very young child to have to live through. The family of the girl sought an abortion for her once they found out that she was pregnant. But living in the state of Ohio, which has very clear heartbeat law, in effect, she could not obtain the abortion unless she visited a neighboring state, which, which had more lenient laws regarding abortion. And this story, if you recall, back in July, gained national attention. Um, many Republicans who are politically on the pro-life side said that the story was likely a hoax. And they took their cue, they said this, because our own Attorney General, David Yost, said at the time, it's likely a fabrication by the media. Well, it turned out not to be a fabrication. It was true. 
And it would seem that the young girl was eventually taken to a state that accommodated the taking of her unborn baby's life. What a terrible set of circumstances. What a completely sad and tragic thing to have happened to that young girl. What an evil thing was done to her. Yet what an effective scenario it was to take the wind out of the sails of the pro-life movement who had just seen a huge victory in the Supreme Court the month before. This story made its way to our own youth group here at Grace. A question and answer discussion time that we had a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, where one of the teens had been discussing this issue amongst their peers and they felt conflicted about what was the right thing to believe and do in this instance. If you do a search for this story on the internet, you are going to be hard-pressed to find any news agency that doesn't paint those who would urge the girl and her family to consider life and defense of the unborn. You would, you would, you would be hard-pressed to find any that didn't paint a person who believes that as almost as monstrous as the person who raped that young girl. What a terribly difficult situation to have to navigate. But what has God spoken? That's ultimately the question that matters most. What has God spoken? Did not God say, thou shalt not murder? Is not the taking of an innocent unborn child's life murder? It's not hard to discern God's thoughts on this case. God, of course, condemns the rapist. God is concerned and grieved for this victimized young girl. God also cares for the well-being of that innocent, unborn child. But as I pondered this young member of our youth group discussing this issue with their friends and seeing their friend's passionate concern for this poor 10-year-old girl, which is rightly so, and hearing them, though, condemn the state of Ohio's heartless and strict abortion laws, as they would put it. I can imagine how hard it would be for them, that member of our youth group, to in that moment pause to consider God's thoughts and words that are relevant to this issue. And even if in that moment that they did think through this issue biblically, How hard would it have been for them to stand alone against the crowd to speak out in defense of the unborn? Would any of you have the courage to do that? Knowing it is good and right to stand up in defense of the most helpless and innocent in our society, the unborn, but being made to feel in moments like those that your concern for the unborn is actually being cruel to the young mother. How would you fare if you found yourself in a situation like that? Some of your kids are in a situation like that. How well would you resist remaining silent in the face of an emotionally impassioned crowd demanding access to an abortion for this young victim? Or even worse, would you find yourself joining in with the chorus of those against protecting the life of the unborn in this very tragic situation? Would you join the chorus of those who are haters of good? Hard thoughts to ponder. I'm going to move on. 
verses 5 to 7. Time does not permit me to, to delve too deeply into, into these three verses, so I'm going to summarize quickly by saying that they describe the nature of the predators who are hunting down to ensnare and capture or captivate those who are vulnerable. These verses also describe the nature of the prey that they seek after. The predators are false teachers, and they hold to an outward form of godliness, it says, but they deny its power. They're pretenders who look and talk like Christians, but their aim is to confuse and to lead astray and to deceive. They use subtlety in seeking out the weakness of their victims. They even use subversive tactics. They creep in. They take advantage of others. Their character is as wicked as those bringing those difficult times of the last days that Paul just described here. But the prey in these verses is described by Paul as weak women. Literally, it could be rendered little women. I wonder if that's where that book title came from, Little Women, because that's actually literally what it means, little women. And Paul is not being derogatory toward women here in general, okay? He's talking actually about a specific example of the type of people that he has seen false teachers take advantage of before. These women are weak or or little in the sense that they're not mature in faith. They're weighed down, it says. They're weighed down by past sins, and they continue to linger in myriad, it says, sinful desires. And this keeps them from making rational and responsible decisions. And it keeps them ever vulnerable to the wiles of these deceptive teachers. Teachers who will tell them flattering things. Teachers who will give them false hope. Teachers who will likely milk them of their money. And they're described as always learning, these women. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Their sinful and demoralized lives have led to their incapacity to discern what is right and what is wrong. And they're never quite able to grasp the truth of the gospel that would save them. Why are they ever learning and and unable to come to the knowledge of the truth? Why are so many in our own generation, even in the churches, so much like this? Ever learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What is the root of this inability to discern? This inability to arrive at a sound conclusion? This leads me to my final aim in being before you today, and that is to point out what I believe is the main point for us and its implication in this passage. You see, the main point that Paul is communicating here is describing the effects of disordered love. Disordered love. To summarize Paul's main point related to the cause of all of this evil, we look at the structure of the way in which he laid out this laundry list of evils. You see, that whole list is sandwiched right between the love of self and the lack of love for God. Thus, if the fountain of all of this wickedness is love of self, the remedy for all of this wickedness is the love of God. Whitney Houston saying that self-love is the greatest love of all. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Very different loves. When we have our love ordered rightly, 
it becomes the source of goodness and righteousness and virtue in our lives. Chuck Missler is quoted as saying, the Bible teaches us we should worship God, love people, and use things. But when we make ourselves the object of worship, we ignore God and we love things and use people. I think that's good. I think that's true. The root cause of all of these other evils is humanity placing themselves on the thrones of their own hearts. They love themselves rather than loving God first and foremost. Sadly, many Christians do this as well. And the effect of this disordered love is rampant and runaway enslavement to ever-darkening sin. The effect of this disordered love is weakness and vulnerability to every form of diabolical deception and false teaching. The effect of this disordered love is lack of moral clarity. Your self-love will lead to an inability to discern and an inability to build your life on a solid foundation. Whereas your love ordered rightly toward God first and foremost leads to the ability to sense and avoid deception. An ability to discern truth from error. What, or rather, who you love has profound implications in all of life's arenas. The effect of this disordered love is directionless and pointless learning. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Education is a major focus in our society and in our world today, in our culture. In many ways, it is extremely important. How will you navigate the future if you don't have appropriate knowledge of the world around you? When we consider learning, what do we consider are our motives or our objectives in learning? What's our motive in learning? What gives us the energy to pursue learning? Is it self-love? Well, if it's self-love, then likely the things you're motivated by are a good job eventually, or a desire to look intelligent maybe, or a desire to uh, be respected and needed by other people. If your motive is self-love, then you're going to care a whole lot about your credentials. If your motive in learning and pursuing knowledge and and, and pursuing learning is love for God, then what you're going to be motivated toward is I'm gaining knowledge, I'm learning so that I can be equipped and enabled for ministry. God has every one of you, not just those in the pulpit, but every one of you, every one of His people, he He completely expects you to be equipped and motivated and enabled for ministry. This is why you should pursue learning. If your motive for learning is love for God, then you're going to have a desire to understand more clearly the Lord and His creation. Your desire is going to be to be useful to God. Your desire is going to be to find God's favor, not the world's favor. And when we think about our objective in pursuing learning, what do we hope to achieve by pursuing all of this knowledge Well, if self-love is our motive, if self-love is what informs our objective in learning, then the end in mind for you is going to be your eventual comfort 
and well-being. It's going to be something like financial security. It's going to be something like wanting to have all the money you can imagine to buy all the things that you want. It's going to be luxury and fine dining and refinement. If love of self is your objective. If your objective in learning is love for God, then your end goal is to eventually be with Him forever. Your end goal is to be more like Him. Your end goal is to know His power and His presence. Your end goal is to be filled ever more and more each day with awe at His glory and the glory of what He has made. In a word, your end goal will be to love Him more and more. If your objective and motive for living and learning are rooted in self-love, then your learning and living will be pointless. If your objective and motive for living and learning are rooted in love for God, then your learning will have direction and living, your living will be eternal and blessed. Brothers and sisters, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of us are guilty of disordered love. That is the natural human condition in this world that is fallen, in this world that is marred by sin. Each of us enter the world completely consumed with our own selves. And we set ourselves up as God of all and love of our lives. And Lord, we live in a world that celebrates this and says that this is right and this is good. But your word says that that self-love is actually the fountain of all other evils. And your word says that the remedy for all of this is to reorient and reorder our love so that it is pointed toward you and not toward ourselves. Father, grow each of us in this love for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand for the benediction. May the God of all love be your highest aim. May He be your steadfast pursuit in all of living and all of learning. May knowledge of Him be your light and your clarity in a darkening world. And may love for Him be the deepest and greatest love of your life. Depart in His love and peace. Amen.